My beloved brothers and sisters, how pleased I am to welcome you to the 183rd Annual General Conference of the Church. During the six months since last we met, it's been my opportunity to travel a bit and meet with some of you in your own areas. Following General Conference in October, I traveled to Germany, where it was my privilege to meet with our members at several locations in that country, as well as in parts of Austria. At the end of October, I dedicated the Calgary Alberta Temple in Canada with the assistance of Elder and Sister M. Russell Ballard, Elder and Sister Craig C. Christensen, and Elder and Sister William R. Walker. In November, I dedicated the Boise, Idaho Temple, also traveling with me and participating in the dedication were Elder and Sister David A. Bednar, Elder and Sister Craig C. Christensen, and Elder and Sister William R. Walker. The cultural celebrations held in conjunction both of these dedications were outstanding. I did not personally attend the cultural celebration in Calgary inasmuch as it was Sister Monson's 85th birthday. I felt I should be with her. However, she and I were privileged to watch the celebration in our living room over closed-circuit television. Then I flew to Calgary the following morning for the dedication. In Boise, over 9,000 youth from the Temple District participated in the cultural celebration. There were so many young people involved that there was not room for family members to attend in the area in which they performed. Just last month, Dieter F. Uchtdorf, accompanied by Sister Uchtdorf, Elder and Sister Jeffrey R. Holland, and Elder and Sister Gregory A. Schweitzer, traveled to Tegucigalpa, Honduras, to dedicate our newly completed temple there. A magnificent youth celebration took place the evening prior to the dedication. There are other temples which have been announced and which are at various stages in the preliminary process or which are under construction. It is my privilege this morning to announce two additional temples which in coming months and years will be built in the following locations, Cedar City, Utah and Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Brothers and sisters, temple building continues unabated. As you know, in the October General Conference, I announced changes in the ages in which young men and young women might serve as full-time missionaries, with the young men now being able to serve at age 18 and the young women at 19. The response of our young people has been remarkable and inspiring. As of April 4th, two days ago, we have 65,634 full-time missionaries serving, with over 20,000 more who have received their calls but have not yet entered a missionary training center, and over 6,000 more in the interview process with their bishops and stake presidents. It's been made necessary for us to create 58 new missions to accommodate the increased number of missionaries. To help maintain this missionary force, because many of our missionaries come from modest circumstances, we invite you as you are able to contribute generously to the General Missionary Fund of the Church. Now, brothers and sisters, we will hear inspired messages today and tomorrow. Those who will address us have sought prayerfully 
to know that which the Lord would have us here at this time, I urge you to be attentive and receptive to the messages which we will hear, that we may do so is my prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord. Amen. I am grateful to be with you in this conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This is His Church. We take His name upon us as we enter His kingdom. He is a God, the Creator, and perfect. We are mortals subject to death and sin. Yet in His love for us and our families, He invites us to be close to Him. Here are His words. Draw near unto me, and I will draw near unto you. Seek me diligently, and ye shall find me. Ask, and ye shall receive. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. At this Easter season, we are reminded of why we love Him and of the promise He makes to His faithful disciples to become His beloved friends. The Savior made that promise and told us how, in our service to Him, He comes to us. One example is in a revelation to Oliver Cowdery as he served the Lord with the prophet Joseph in the translation of the Book of Mormon. Behold, thou art Oliver, and I have spoken unto thee because of thy desires. Therefore treasure up these words in thy heart. Be faithful and diligent in keeping the commandments of God, and I will encircle thee in the arms of my love. I experienced the joy of coming closer to the Savior and of His coming closer to me, most often through simple acts of obedience to the commandments. You have had such experiences. It may have been when you chose to attend a sacrament meeting. It was for me on a Sabbath when I was very young. In those days, we received the sacrament during an evening meeting. The memory of one day more than 65 years ago, when I kept the commandment to gather with my family and with the saints, still draws me closer to the Savior. It was dark and cold outside. I remember feeling light and warmth in the chapel that evening with my parents. We partook of the sacrament, administered by Aaronic priesthood holders, covenanting with our Heavenly Father to always remember His Son and keep His commandments. At the end of the meeting, we sang the hymn, Abide with me, tis eventide, with the words in it, O Savior, stay this night with me. I felt the Savior's love and closeness that evening, and I felt the comfort of the Holy Ghost. I wanted to rekindle once again the feelings of the love of the Savior and His closeness that I felt during that sacrament meeting in my youth. So recently I kept another commandment. I searched in the scriptures. In them I knew I could go back again to have the Holy Ghost let me feel what two disciples of the risen Lord had felt when He had accepted their invitation to come into their home and to abide with them. 
I read of the third day after his crucifixion and burial. Faithful women and others found the stone rolled away from the tomb and saw that his body was not there. They had come out of love for him to anoint his body. Two angels stood by and asked why they were afraid, saying, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered under the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. In the Gospel of Mark, he adds the direction from one of the angels, But go your way. Tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him, as he said unto you. The apostles and disciples had gathered in Jerusalem. As we might have been, they were afraid and wondered as they spoke together about what death and reports of his being resurrected meant for them. Two of the disciples walked that evening from Jerusalem on the road to Emmaus. The resurrected Christ appeared in the dusk on the road and walked with them. The Lord had come to them. The book of Luke allows us to walk with them that evening. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that you have one to another as ye walk and are sad? And one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered and said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? They told him of their sadness, that Jesus had died when they had trusted he would be the Redeemer of Israel. There must have been affection in the risen Lord's voice as he spoke to these two sorrowful and mourning disciples. Then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then came a moment that has worn my heart since I was a little boy. And they drew nigh unto the village whither they went, and he made as though he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. The Savior accepted that night the invitation to enter the house of his disciples near the village of Emmaus. He sat at meat with them. He took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. Their eyes were opened so that they knew him. Then he vanished out of their sight. Luke recorded for us the feelings of those blessed disciples. And they said one to another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way, and while he opened to us the scriptures? At that same hour, the two disciples rushed back to Jerusalem 
to tell the 11 apostles what had happened to them. In that moment, the Savior appeared again. He reviewed the prophecies of his mission to atone for the sins of all his father's children and to break the bands of death. And he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. The Savior's words are true as well for us as they were for his disciples then. We are witnesses of these things. And the glorious charge we accepted as we were baptized into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was made plain for us by the prophet Alma centuries ago at the Waters of Mormon. And it came to pass that he said unto them, Behold, here are the waters of Mormon, for thus they were called. And now as ye are desirous to come into the fold of God and to be called his people, and are willing to bear one another's burdens that they may be light, yea, and are willing to mourn with those that mourn, yea, and comfort those that stand in need of comfort, and to stand as witnesses of God at all times and in all things, and in all places that you may be in, even until death, that ye may be redeemed of God and be numbered with those of the first resurrection, that ye may have eternal life. Now I say unto you, if this be the desire of your hearts, what have you against being baptized in the name of the Lord as a witness before Him, that you have entered into a covenant with Him, that you will serve Him and keep His commandments, that He may pour out His Spirit more abundantly upon you. And now when the people had heard these words, they clapped their hands for joy and exclaimed, This is the desire of our hearts. We are under covenant both to lift up those in need and to be witnesses of the Savior as long as we live. We will only be able to do it without fail as we feel love for the Savior and His love for us. As we are faithful to the promises we have made, we will feel our love for Him. It will increase because we will feel His power and His drawing near to us in His service. President Thomas S. Monson has reminded us often of the promise of the Lord to His faithful disciples, And whoso receiveth you, there I will be also, for I will go before your face. I will be on your right hand and on your left, and my spirit shall be in your hearts, and mine angels round about you to bear you up. There is another way you and I have felt him grow closer to us. As we give devoted service to him, he draws closer to those we love in our families. Every time I have been called in the Lord's service to move or to leave my family, I have come to see that the Lord was blessing my wife and my children. He prepared loving servants of His and opportunities to draw my family closer to Him. You have felt that same blessing in your lives. Many of you have loved ones who are wandering off the path to eternal life. You wonder what more you can do to bring them back. 
you can depend on the Lord to draw closer to Him as you serve Him in faith. You remember the Lord's promise to Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon when they were away from their families on his errands. My friends, my friends, Sidney and Joseph, your families are well. They are in my hands, and I will do for them as, as seemeth me good, for in me there is all power. Like Alma and King Mosiah, some faithful parents have served the Lord long and well, yet have had children who wandered despite their parents' sacrifice for the Lord. They have done all they could to no apparent avail, even with help from loving and faithful friends. Alma and the saints of his day prayed for his son and the sons of King Mosiah. An angel came. Your prayers and the prayers of those who exercise their faith will bring the Lord's servants to help your family members. They will help them choose the way home to God, even as they are attacked by Satan and his followers, whose purpose it is to destroy families in this life and in eternity. You remember the words spoken by the angel to Alma the Younger and the sons of Mosiah in their rebellion. And again the angel said, Behold, the Lord hath heard the prayers of his people and also the prayers of his servant Alma, who is thy father. For he has prayed with much faith concerning thee, that thou mightest be brought to the knowledge of the truth. Therefore, for this purpose have I come, to convince thee of the power and authority of God, that the prayers of his servants might be answered according to their faith. My promise to you who pray and serve the Lord cannot be that you will have every blessing you may wish for yourself and your family, but I can promise you that the Savior will draw close to you and bless you and your family with what is best. You will have the comfort of His love and the feel the answer of His drawing closer as you reach out your arms in giving service to others, as you bind up the wounds of those in need and offer the cleansing of His Atonement to those who sorrow in sin. The Lord's power will sustain you. His arms are outstretched with yours to succor and bless the children of our Heavenly Father, including those in your family. There is a glorious homecoming prepared for us. We will then see fulfilled the promise of the Lord we have loved. It is He who welcomes us into eternal life with Him and our Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ, described it, He described it this way. Seek to bring forth and establish my Zion. Keep my commandments in all things. And if ye keep my commandments and endure the end, ye shall have eternal life, which gift is the greatest of all the gifts of God. For those that live shall inherit the earth, and those that die shall rest from all their labors, and their works shall follow them, and they shall receive a crown in the mansions of my Father which I have prepared for them. I testify that we can, by the Spirit, follow the invitation of Heavenly Father. This is my beloved Son.
hear Him. By His words and His example, Christ has shown us how to draw closer to Him. Every child of Heavenly Father who has chosen to enter through the gate of baptism into His Church will have the opportunity to be taught His gospel and to hear from His called servants His invitation, Come unto Me. Every covenant servant of His within His kingdom on earth and in the spirit world will receive His guidance by the Spirit as they bless and serve others for Him. And they will feel His love and find joy in being drawn closer to Him. I am a witness of the resurrection of the Lord as surely as if I had been there in the evening with the two disciples in the house on Emmaus Road. I know that He lives as surely as did Joseph Smith when he saw the Father and the Son in the light of a brilliant morning in a grove of trees in Palmyra. This is the true Church of Jesus Christ. Only in the priesthood keys held by President Thomas S. Monson is the power for us to be sealed in families, to live forever with our Heavenly Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We will on the day of judgment stand before the Savior face to face. It will be time of, a time of joy for those who have drawn close to Him in His service in this life. It will be a joy to hear the words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. I so testify as a witness of the risen Savior and our Redeemer. In this name of Jesus Christ, amen. President Packer, we're all looking forward to the 98 version of that wonderful poem. What a wonderful instruction he gave to us. A few weeks ago on a cold winter's night, my wife Barbara and I looked in awe up at the sky. The millions of stars seemed exceptionally bright and beautiful. I then turned to the Pearl of Great Price and again read with wonder what the Lord God said to Moses. And worlds without number have I created, and I also created them for mine own purpose. And by the Son I created them, which is mine only begotten. In our day, the Hubble Deep Space Telescope has confirmed the magnitude of what Moses saw. Hubble scientists say the Milky Way and galaxy of which our Earth and Sun are just a tiny part is estimated to be only one of over 200 billion similar galaxies. For me, it's difficult to comprehend impossible to fathom, so large, so vast are God's creations. Brothers and sisters, the power by which the heavens and the earth were created is the priesthood. Those of us who are members of the Church know that the source of this priesthood power is God Almighty and His Son, Jesus Christ. Not only is the priesthood the power by which the heavens and the earth were created, but it is the power the Savior used in His mortal ministry 
to perform miracles, to bless and heal the sick, to bring the dead to life, and as our Father's only begotten Son, to endure the unbearable pain of Gethsemane and Calvary, thus fulfilling the laws of justice with mercy and providing an infinite atonement and overcoming physical death through the resurrection. The keys of this priesthood authority and resultant power that he gave to Peter, James, and John and his other apostles to bless others and to bind in heaven that which is bound on earth is the power of the priesthood. It is a sacred and essential gift of God. It is different from priesthood authority, which is the authorization to act in God's name. The authorization or ordination is given by the laying on of hands. The power of the priesthood comes only when those who exercise it are worthy and acting in accordance with God's will. As President Spencer W. Kimball declared, the Lord has given to all of us as holders of the priesthood certain of His authority, but we can only tap the powers of heaven on the basis of personal righteousness. Close quote. During the glorious days of the Restoration and the reestablishment of the Church of Jesus Christ in the world today, John the Baptist, Peter, James, and John, Moses, Elias, and Elijah came to the earth and restored through the prophet Joseph Smith all of the keys and authority of the priesthood for the work of God in these latter days. It is by these keys, this authority, and this power that the Church of Jesus Christ is organized today with Christ at the head directing his living prophet Thomas S. Monson and assisted by duly called and ordained apostles. In our Heavenly Father's great priesthood endowed plan, men have the unique responsibility to administer the priesthood, but they are not the priesthood. Men and women have different but equally valued roles. Just as a woman cannot conceive a child without a man, so a man cannot fully exercise the power of the priesthood to establish an eternal family without a woman. In other words, in the eternal perspective, both the procreative power and the priesthood power are shared by husband and wife. And as husband and wife, a man and a woman should strive to follow our Heavenly Father. The Christian virtues of love, humility, and patience should be their focus as they seek the blessings of the priesthood in their lives and for their family. It is crucial for us to understand that Heavenly Father has provided a way for all of His sons and His daughters to have access, access to the blessings and be strengthened by the power of the priesthood. 
central to God's plan for His spirit children, is His own declaration. This is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. In the revelation given to the Prophet Joseph Smith in section 81 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord explains that the power of the priesthood is to be used to succor the weak, lift up the hands that hang down, and strengthen the feeble knees. And in doing these things, thou wilt do the greatest good unto thy fellow beings, and wilt promote the glory of Him who is your Lord. As we think about the imagery of succoring the weak, lifting up the hands that hang down, and strengthening feeble knees, I am reminded of a sweet seven-year-old showing her grandfather a small tomato plant she had started from seed as part of a second-grade school project. She explained that from one tiny seed would come a plant, and if the plant were cared for, it would grow many tomatoes that would each have many seeds, she said. And if all of those seeds were planted and grew, more tomatoes, and you planted all of those seeds in a few seasons, you would have millions of tomatoes. All, she said, in amazement, from one little seed. But then she said, I almost killed my plant. I left it in a dark room and forgot to water it. When I remembered the plant, it was wilted and dead-looking. I cried because I thought of all those millions of tomatoes that would never grow. She was then excited to tell her grandfather about the miracle that happened. She explained, Mama said, maybe the plant wasn't dead. Maybe all it needed was some water and some light to bring life back. And she was right. I gave the plant some water and I put it in the window for light. And guess what? She asked. It came back to life. And now it's going to grow millions of tomatoes. Her small tomato plant, so full of potential, but so weakened and wilted from unintentional neglect, was strengthened and revived through the simple ministration of water and light by the little girl's loving hands. Brothers and sisters, as the literal spirit children of our loving Heavenly Father, we have unlimited divine potential. But if we're not careful, we can become like the wilted tomato plant. We can drift away from the true doctrine and gospel of Christ and become spiritually undernourished and wilted, having removed ourselves from the divine light and living waters of the Savior's eternal love and priesthood power. Those who hold the priesthood and fail to constantly strive to honor it by serving our families and others will be like those who do not receive the blessings inherent in the power of the priesthood and will surely wilt spiritually 
having deprived themselves of the essential spiritual nutrients, light, and power of God in their lives, much like the tomato plant so full of potential, but neglected and wilted. The same priesthood power that created worlds, galaxies, and the universe can and should be part of our lives to succor, strengthen, and bless our families, our friends, and our neighbors. In other words, to do the things that the Savior would do if He were ministering among us today. And the primary purpose of this priesthood power is to bless, sanctify, and purify us so we can live together with our families in the presence of heavenly parents, bound by priesthood ceilings, participating in the marvelous work of God and Jesus Christ in forever expanding their light and glory. To this end, a few months ago, I had the opportunity to participate in making a video-based worldwide leadership training presentation called Strengthening the Family and the Church Through the Priesthood. This innovative and instructive DVD is translated into 66 languages. It teaches how the power of the priesthood can bless, vitalize, and revitalize our lives, the lives of our families, and of all of the members of the Church. It shows us all, men, women, children, married, widowed, or single, no matter what our circumstances, how we can be partakers of the blessings of the priesthood. There are several 8 to 12-minute segments that explain the keys, authority, and power of the priesthood and how it strengthens individuals, families, and the Church. One special scene was filmed in the very small pioneer home of my mother's great-grandmother, Mary Fielding Smith. She was the widow of Hiram, the prophet's Joseph's older brother. As a single parent, through her strong faith in the priesthood, she called upon and relied on that power to raise and bless her children in love and the light of the gospel. Today, her posterity of thousands of faithful leaders and members of the Church thank her for her faith, courage, and example. This new leadership training is now available on the Internet at lds.org for all to see and experience. You can stream it from live from lds.org, or you can download it to your computer, smartphone, or tablet devices. The first presidency is asked, stake presidencies and bishop, bishoprics to dedicate one or more stake or ward council meetings in to view the entire DVD. Stake and ward councils should discuss how to implement the teachings that are presented. Close quote. The content will inspire and motivate members in priesthood quorums, Relief Society, Sunday School, young women, young men, and especially those preparing for their missions, and in primary meetings or combined Fifth Sunday gatherings. 
Council members will then be able to encourage individuals and parents to use this presentation with their families. Brothers and sisters, this leadership training is for every member of the Church. Parents review and share and discuss what you learn and feel with your children and let them watch and do the same with you in your fam that your families may be strengthened through the priesthood. Jesus said, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into eternal life. I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall have the light of life. If any one of you feels your faith or your testimony of Heavenly Father's plan is less than you know it should be, then turn more fully to the Savior. Let His light, His living water, do for you and your family what a little water and light did in bringing life back to the weakened tomato plant. Now I began with the wonder and awe in God's, the creations of God through the power of the priesthood. As I stand here, I suppose most of you feel the same way I do, wondering if God's power to instruct and bless us can ever be fully comprehended. It is so great, so majestic, so powerful. Joseph Smith said, The priesthood is an everlasting principle and existed with God from eternity and will to eternity without beginning of days or end of years. God has freely given His power to those who accept and honor His priesthood, which leads to the promised blessings of immortality and eternal life. I testify that the work of Jesus Christ is accomplished through the priesthood. It is the power by which our Heavenly Father and His beloved Son created this earth and set in motion the great plan of happiness for our sakes. May we be wise and seek to strengthen our own lives, the lives of our families, and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Through the power of the priesthood of God is my humble prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. During the time of our Savior's mortal ministry, many followed after Him, including scribes and Pharisees out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. A bedridden, paralyzed man desiring to be healed was brought to a large gathering, but was unable to get close to the Savior. His friends took him to the roof of the house where the Savior was and lowered him down. Seeing this demonstration of faith with great purpose not yet known to his listeners, the Savior declared, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. This must have surprised the man. And although the scriptures say nothing of his reaction, he may have wondered if the Savior really understood why he had come. 
The Savior knew that many people followed him because of his mighty miracles. Already he had turned water to wine, cast out unclean spirits, healed the nobleman's son, a leper, the centurion's servant, Peter's mother-in-law, and many others, and had restored to life the widow's son. But with this paralyzed man, the Lord chose to give evidence to both disciple and detractor of his unique role as Savior of the world. Hearing the Savior's words, the scribes and Pharisees had begun to reason among themselves, ignorantly speaking of blasphemy, while concluding that only God can forgive sin. Perceiving their thoughts, the Savior addressed them, saying, What reason ye in your hearts, whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Rise up and walk? Not waiting for the response, the Savior continued, But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power upon earth to forgive sins. He then turned to the paralyzed man, I say unto thee, Arise and take up thy couch and go into thine house. And he did. By this miraculous physical healing, the Savior confirmed to all of us this infinitely more powerful spiritual truth. The Son of Man forgives sins. While this truth is readily accepted by all believers, not so easily acknowledged is the essential companion truth. The Savior forgives sins upon earth and not just at the final judgment. He does not excuse us in our sins. He does not condone our return to past sins. But when we obey His gospel, He forgives us. This forgive, in this forgiveness, we see the enabling and the redeeming power of the Atonement harmoniously and graciously applied. By exercising faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the enabling power of His Atonement strengthens us in our moment of need, and His redeeming power sanctifies us as we put off the natural man. This brings hope to all, especially to those who feel that recurring human weakness is beyond the Savior's willingness to help and to save. Enlightening our understanding, Peter once inquired how many times he should forgive his brother and then ask, Till seven times? Surely that would be more than enough. But the Savior's response opened wide the door to his merciful heart. I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. The Lord loves us and wants us to understand His willingness to forgive. On more than twenty occasions in the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord told those to whom He was speaking, Thy sins are forgiven thee, or similar words. On about half of those occasions, the Lord was speaking specifically to the prophet Joseph Smith, sometimes addressing him alone, sometimes with others. The first of these was recorded in 1830, the last in 1843. Thus, over a span of many years, the Lord told Joseph repeatedly, Thy sins are forgiven thee. While Joseph was not guilty of any great or malignant sins, we do well to remember that with very few exceptions, the Lord seventy times seven does not limit forgiveness according to the seriousness of the sin. While speaking to elders assembled in Kirtland, the Lord said, I will that you should overcome the world, wherefore I will have compassion upon you. The Lord knows our weakness and the eternal consequences of the world upon imperfect men and women. The word wherefore in this verse is His affirmation that it is only by virtue of His compassion 
that we may ultimately overcome the world. How is that compassion made manifest? To these same elders in Kirtland, he said, I have forgiven you your sins. The Savior wants to forgive. No one needs to suppose that this forgiveness comes without repentance. Indeed, the Lord has declared, I, the Lord, forgive sins unto those who confess their sins before me and ask forgiveness, and then adds the cautionary qualifier, who have not sinned unto death. While the Lord cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance, yet He differentiates the relative gravity of some sins. He stipulates there will be no forgiveness for blasphemy against the Holy Ghost. He declares the gravity of murder and emphasizes the seriousness of sexual sin, such as adultery. With repeated serious sexual sin, He makes known the increased difficulty of receiving His forgiveness. And He has said that he who sins against the greater light shall receive the greater condemnation. Yet in His mercy, He allows for improvement over time rather than demanding immediate perfection. Even with the multitude of sins occasioned by the weakness of mortality, as often as we repent and seek His forgiveness, He forgives again and again. Because of this, all of us, including those struggling to overcome addictive behaviors such as substance abuse or pornography and those close to them, can know that the Lord will recognize our righteous efforts and will lovingly forgive when repentance is complete until 70 times 7. But this does not mean one may willingly return to sin with impunity. The Lord is always interested in our hearts, and rationalized false faith does not justify sin. In this dispensation, the Lord warned one of His servants against such rationalization by declaring, Let him be ashamed of the Nicolaitan band and of their secret abominations. The Nicolaitans were an ancient religious sect that claimed license to commit sexual sin by virtue of the Lord's grace. This is not pleasing to the Lord. His compassion and grace do not excuse us when our hearts are not satisfied and we obey not the truth but have pleasure in unrighteousness. Rather, after doing all we can do, His compassion and grace are the means whereby, in process of time, we overcome the world through the enabling power of the Atonement. By humbly seeking this precious gift, weak things become strong unto us, and by His strength we are made able to do that which we could never do alone. The Lord looks upon the light we have received, the desires of our hearts and our actions, and when we repent and seek His forgiveness, He forgives. As we consider our own lives and the lives of our loved ones and acquaintances, we should be equally willing to forgive ourselves and others. Preach My Gospel speaks of the difficulty in overcoming addictive behavior and encourages priesthood leaders and members to not be shocked or discouraged if investigators or new members continue to struggle with such problems. Rather, we are counseled to show confidence in the individual and not be judgmental, treating it as a temporary and understandable setback. Could we do less with our own children or family members who struggle with similar problems, having temporarily strayed from the path of righteousness? Surely they merit our steadiness, patience, and love, and yes, our forgiveness. In General Conference just last October, President Monson counseled, We need to bear in mind that people can change. They can put behind them bad habits. 
They can repent from transgressions. We can help them overcome their shortcomings. We must develop the capacity to see men not as they are at present, but as they may become. At an early conference of the Church, similar to this conference, the Lord told members, Verily I say unto you, Ye are clean, but not all. For all flesh is corrupted before me. For verily, some of you are guilty before me. But I will be merciful unto your weakness. His message is the same today. The Lord knows what we are facing, that we all sin and come short of the glory of God again and again. He knoweth the weakness of man and how to succor them who are tempted. He teaches us to pray always that we enter not into temptation. We are told to cry unto Him for mercy, for He is mighty to save. He commands us to repent and to forgive. And although repentance is not easy, as we strive with all our hearts to obey His gospel, He gives this promise. Verily I say unto you, Notwithstanding your sins, my bowels are filled with compassion towards you. I will not utterly cast you off, and in the day of wrath I will remember mercy. The Savior wants to forgive. Each week, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir begins its inspiring broadcast with the uplifting words of William W. Phelps's familiar hymn, Gently Raise the Sacred Strain. Not as familiar are the comforting words of the fourth verse. Holy, holy is the Lord. Precious, precious is His word. Repent and live. Though your sins be crimson red, oh, repent and He'll forgive. I invite you to remember and believe the words of the Lord and to exercise faith in Him unto repentance. He loves you. He wants to forgive. I so testify in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Every week, young women all over the world repeat the young women theme. No matter the language, each time I hear these words, we are daughters of our Heavenly Father who loves us and we love Him. The Spirit affirms to my soul that they are true. It is not only an affirmation of our identity, but also an acknowledgement of whose we are. We are daughters of an exalted being. In every country and on every continent I have met confident, articulate young women filled with light, refined by hard work and trial, possessing pure and simple faith. They are virtuous. They are covenant keepers who stand as witnesses of God at all times and in all things and in all places. They know who they are and that they have a significant role to play in building the kingdom of God. When I was in college, I was a member of the BYU International Folk Dancers. One summer, our group had a unique privilege to tour the missions in Europe. It was a difficult summer for me because a few months earlier my father had unexpectedly passed away. While we were in Scotland, I felt especially alone and became discouraged. We danced at a chapel that night, and then after our performance we went next door to the mission home. As I proceeded up the walk, 
I saw a stone placed in a well-kept garden by the gate. On it I read the words, Whate'er thou art, act well thy part. At that moment those words went deeply into my heart, and I felt the powers of heaven reach out and give me a message. I knew I was known by a loving Heavenly Father. I felt I was not alone. I stood in that garden with tears in my eyes. Whate'er thou art, act well thy part. That simple statement renewed my vision that Heavenly Father knew me and had a plan for my life, and the spirit I felt helped me understand that my part mattered. Later, I learned that this saying had once motivated the prophet David O. McKay while he was serving as a young missionary in Scotland. He had seen it on a stone on a building at a discouraging time in his life and on his mission, and the words lifted him. Years later, as the building was being torn down, he made arrangements to obtain the stone and had it placed in the garden at the mission home. As daughters of God, we are each unique and different in our circumstances and experiences, and yet our part matters because we matter. Our daily contributions of nurturing, teaching, and caring for others may seem mundane, diminished, difficult, and demeaning at times. And yet, as we remember that first line in the Young Women theme, we are daughters of our Heavenly Father who loves us, it will make all the difference in our relationships and our responses. Recently, my magnificent 92-year-old mother passed away. She left this mortal existence as she had lived, quietly. Her life was not what she had planned. Her husband, my father, passed away when he was 45, leaving her with three children, me and my two brothers. She lived 47 years as a widow. She supported our family by teaching school during the day and teaching piano lessons at night. She cared for her aging father, my grandfather, who lived next door. She made sure that each of us received a college education. In fact, she insisted on it so that we could be contributors. As she, and she never complained. She kept her covenants, and because she did, she called down the powers of heaven to bless our home and to send miracles. She relied on the power of prayer priesthood, and covenant promises. She was faithful in her service to the Lord. Her steadfast devotion steadied us, her children. She often repeated the scripture, I, the Lord, am bound when ye do what I say, but when ye do not what I say, ye have no promise. That was her motto, and she knew it was true. She understood what it meant to be a covenant keeper. She was never recognized by the world. She didn't want that. She understood who she was and whose she was—a daughter of God. Indeed, it can be said of our mother that she acted well her part. Of women and mothers, President Gordon B. Hinckley once said, We must never lose sight of the strength of the women. It is mothers who most directly affect the lives of their children. It is mothers who nurture them and bring them up in the ways of the Lord. Their influence is paramount. They are the creators of life. They are the nurturers of children. They are the teachers of young women. 
They are our indispensable companions. They are our co-workers in building the kingdom of God. How great is their role? How marvelous their contribution? So how does a mother or a father instill in their daughters the ennobling and eternal truth that we are daughters of God? How do we help them step out of the world and step into the kingdom of God? In a morally desensitizing world, young women need women and men to stand as witnesses of God at all times and in all things and in all places. Never before has this been more important than now. Young women need mothers and mentors who exemplify virtuous womanhood. Mothers, your relationship with your daughter is of paramount importance, and so is your example. How you love and honor her father, his priesthood, and his divine role will be reflected and perhaps amplified in your daughter's attitudes and behavior. What is that part? We must all act well. The family proclamation is clear. By divine design, fathers are to preside over their families in love and righteousness and are responsible to provide the necessities of life and protection for their families. Mothers are primarily responsible for the nurture of their children. In these sacred responsibilities, fathers and mothers are obligated to help one another as equal partners. We warn that individuals who violate covenants of chastity, who abuse spouse or offspring, or who fail to fulfill family responsibilities will one day stand accountable before God. In the decadent society of Mormon's time, he lamented that the women were robbed of that which was most dear and precious above all, their virtue and chastity. Again. I renew the call for a return to virtue. Virtue is the strength and power of daughters of God. What would the world be like if virtue, a pattern of thought and behavior based on high moral standards, including chastity, were reinstated in our society as a most highly prized value? If immorality, pornography, and abuse decreased, would there be fewer broken marriages, broken lives, and broken hearts? Would media ennoble and enable rather than objectify and degrade God's precious daughters? If all humanity really understood the importance of the statement, we are daughters of our Heavenly Father, how would women be regarded and treated? Several years ago, as this conference center was being built and nearing completion, I entered this sacred building on the balcony level in a hard hat and safety glasses, ready to vacuum the carpet that my husband was helping to install. Where the rostrum now stands, there was a front-end loader moving dirt, and the dust in this building was thick. It settled. When it settled, it did so on the new carpet. My part was to vacuum, and so I vacuumed and vacuumed and vacuumed. After three days, my little vacuum burned up. <laughs> the afternoon before the first general conference in this beautiful building, my husband called me. 
He was about to install the last piece of carpet under this historic pulpit. He asked, What scripture should I write on the back of this carpet? And I said, Mosiah 18.9, Stand as a witness of God at all times and in all things and in all places. In an extremely challenging world, that is what I see young women and women of this Church doing. They are an influence for good. They are virtuous and exemplary, intelligent and industrious. They are making a difference because they are different. They are acting well their part. Years ago, when I was vacuuming this carpet, trying to act well my small part, I didn't realize that I would one day stand with my feet on the carpet under this pulpit. Today, as a daughter of God, I stand as a witness that He lives. Jesus is the Christ. He is our Redeemer. It is through His infinite atoning sacrifice that I will one day return to live with Him, proven pure and sealed in an eternal family. I shall ever praise Him for the privilege of being a woman, a wife, and a mother. I testify that we are led by a prophet of God, President Thomas S. Monson, and I am grateful for righteous men whose priesthood power blesses my life. And I shall ever be grateful for the strength I receive through the enabling power of the Savior's infinite atonement as I continue to strive to act well my part. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. On October 17, 1989, while driving home after work, I was approaching a stoplight at the intersection of Market and Beale Streets in San Francisco, California. At that moment, I felt the car shake and thought, I must have a flat tire. As the car continued to shake, I noticed a bus quite close to me and thought, that bus just hit me. Then the car shook more and more, and I thought, I must have four flat tires. But it wasn't flat tires or the bus. It was a powerful earthquake. As I stopped at the red light, there were ripples in the pavement like waves of the sea rolling down Market Street. In front of me, a tall office building was swaying from side to side, and bricks began falling from an older building to my left as the earth continued to shake. The Loma Prieta earthquake struck the San Francisco Bay Area at 5.04 p.m. that day and left as many as 12,000 people homeless. The earthquake caused severe damage in the San Francisco Bay Area, most notably on unstable soil in San Francisco and Oakland. In San Francisco, the marina district had been built on a landfill made of a mixture of sand, dirt, rubble, and other materials containing a high percentage of groundwater. Some of the fill was rubble dumped into the San Francisco Bay after the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. In about 1915, apartment buildings were erected on the landfill. In the 1989 earthquake, the water-saturated, unconsolidated mud, sand, and rubble converted to a liquid-like mass, causing the buildings to collapse. The buildings were not built on a shore foundation. The earthquake in San Francisco impacted many lives, including my own. 
Pondering the events of that day reaffirms in my heart and mind that in order to successfully withstand the tempests, earthquakes, and calamities of life, we must build upon a sure foundation. The Nephite prophet Helaman gave unmistakable clarity to the importance of building our lives on a sure foundation, even the foundation of Jesus Christ. And now, my sons, remember, remember that it is upon the rock of our Redeemer, who is Christ, the Son of God, that ye must build your foundation, that when the devil shall send forth his mighty winds, yea, his shafts and the whirlwind, yea, when all his hail and his mighty storms shall beat upon you, it shall have no power over you to drag you down to the gulf of misery and endless woe, because of the rock upon which ye are built, which is a sure foundation, a foundation whereon, if men build, they cannot fall. In the development of modern-day temples, careful attention is given to the design, engineering, and use of building materials. Thorough testing of the soils and geology takes place on the site where a temple will be built. Studies of wind, rain, and changes in the weather for the area are considered so that the completed temple can withstand not only storms and climate common to an area, but the temple is designed and positioned to withstand the unexpected earthquakes, typhoons, floods, and other natural calamities that may occur. In many temples, concrete or steel piles are driven deep into the earth to anchor the temple foundation. Like the designers and builders of our time, our loving and kind Father in Heaven and His Son have prepared plans, tools, and other resources for our use so that we can build and frame our lives to be sure and unshaken. The plan is the plan of salvation, the great plan of happiness. The plan lays out for us a clear picture and understanding of the beginning and the end and the essential steps, including ordinances, which are necessary for each of Father's children to be able to return to His presence and dwell with Him forever. Faith, repentance, baptism, the gift of the Holy Ghost, and enduring to the end are part of the blueprints of life. They help to form the appropriate building blocks that will anchor our lives to the Atonement of Christ. These shape and frame the supporting structure of a person's life. Then, just as temple plans have specifications that give detailed instructions about how to form and integrate essential components—prayer, reading the scriptures, partaking of the sacrament, and receiving essential priesthood ordinances—become the specifications that help integrate and bind together the structure of life. Balance in the application of these specifications is vital. For example, in the process of making concrete, precise amounts of sand, gravel, cement, and water are used in order to achieve maximum strength. An incorrect amount or exclusion of any portion of these elements would make the concrete weak and not able to perform its important function. In like manner, if we do not provide for an appropriate balance in our lives of daily personal prayer and feasting from the scriptures, weekly strengthening from partaking of the sacrament, and frequent participation in priesthood ordinances, such as temple ordinances, we too are at risk of being weakened in our spiritual, structural strength. Paul, in a letter to the Ephesians, said it this way with respect to the need for a balanced and integrated development of our character and soul, in whom all the building, fitly framed together, 
groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. Prayer is one of the most basic and important foundational building blocks of our faith and character. Through prayer, we are able to express our gratitude, love, and devotion to God. Through prayer, we can submit our will to His and in return receive the strength to conform our lives to His teachings. Prayer is the avenue we can follow to seek His influence in our lives, even revelation. Alma taught, Counsel with the Lord in all thy doings, and He will direct thee for good. Yea, when thou liest down at night, lie down unto the Lord, that He may watch over you in your sleep. And when thou risest in the morning, let thy heart be full of thanks unto God. And if ye do these things, ye shall be lifted up at the last day. Sharing our thoughts, feelings, and desires with God through sincere and heartfelt prayer should become to each of us as important and natural as breathing and eating. Searching the scriptures on a daily basis will also fortify our faith and character. Just as we need food to nourish our physical bodies, our spirits and souls will be replenished and strengthened by feasting upon the words of Christ as contained in the writings of the prophets. Nephi taught, Feast upon the words of Christ, for behold, the words of Christ will tell you all things what ye should do. While reading the scriptures is good, reading by itself is insufficient to capture the full breadth and depth of the Savior's teachings. Searching, pondering, and applying the words of Christ as taught in the scriptures will bring wisdom and knowledge beyond our mortal understanding. This will strengthen our commitment and provide the spiritual reserves to do our best in all situations. One of the most important steps we can take to strengthen our lives and remain firmly attached to the foundation of the Savior is to worthily partake of the sacrament each week. The sacrament ordinance affords every Church member the opportunity to ponder his or her life in advance, to consider the actions or non-actions that may need to be repented of, and then to partake of the bread and water as sacred emblems in remembrance of the body and blood of Jesus Christ, a witness of His Atonement. If done with sincerity and in humility, we renew eternal covenants, are cleansed and sanctified, and receive the promise that we will have His Spirit to be with us always. The Spirit acts as a type of mortar, a welding link that not only sanctifies but also brings all things to our remembrance and testifies again and again of Jesus Christ. Worthily partaking of the sacrament strengthens our personal connection to the foundation rock, even to Jesus Christ. During His ministry, the Savior taught with love and clarity the doctrines, principles, and necessary actions that would preserve our lives and strengthen our character. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, He stated, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house. And it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Brothers and sisters, none of us would knowingly construct our homes, places of work, or sacred houses of worship on sand, rubble, or without appropriate plans and materials. Let us accept the Savior's invitation to come unto Him, 
Let us build our lives upon a safe and a sure foundation. I humbly testify that by anchoring our lives to Jesus Christ and to His Atonement, and by carefully following His plans for our happiness, including daily prayer, daily scripture study, and weekly partaking of the sacrament, we will be strengthened. We will experience real personal growth and a lasting conversion. We will be better prepared to successfully withstand the storms and calamities of life and will experience the joy and happiness promised. And we will have the confidence that our lives have been built upon a sure foundation, a foundation that will never fall. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. In 1992, having served nine years and assisted the Twelve, and 22 years as a member of the Corps of the Twelve, I reached the age of 68. I felt impressed to start what I call an unfinished composition. The first part of that work goes like this. I had a thought the other night, a thought profound and deep. It came when I was too worn down, too tired to go to sleep. I'd had a very busy day and pondered on my fate. The thought was this. When I was young, I wasn't 68. I could walk without a limp. I had no shoulder pain. I could read a line through twice and quote it back again. I could work for endless hours and hardly stop to breathe. And things that I cannot do, I mastered that at ease. If I could now turn back the years, if that were mine to choose, I would not barter age for youth. I'd have too much to lose. I'm quite content to move ahead, to yield my youth, however grand. The thing I'd lose if I went back is what I understand. Ten years later, I decided to add a few more lines to that poem. Ten years have flown to who knows where, and with them much of pain. A metal hip erased my limp. I walked quite straight again. Another plate holds knelt wounds fast. A wonderful creation. It backed my polio away. I've joined the Stiffneck generation. The signs of aging can be seen. Those things that will not get better. The only thing that grows in strength in me is my forgetter. You ask, do I remember you? Of course, you're much the same. Now don't go getting all upset if I can't recall your name. I would agree I've learned some things I did not want to know. But age has brought those precious truths that make the spirit grow. Of all the blessings that have come, the best thing in my life is the companionship and comfort I get from my dear wife. Our children all have married well with families of their own, with children and grandchildren. How soon they all have grown. I have not changed my mind one bit about regaining youth. We are meant to age, for with it comes the knowledge of the truth. You ask, what will the future bring? Just what will be my fate? 
I'll go along and not complain. Ask when I'm 88. And last year, I added these lines. <laughs> and now you see I'm 88. The years have flown so fast. I walked, I limped, I held a cane. And now I ride at last. I take a nap now and again, but priesthood power remains. For all the physical things I lack, there are great spiritual gains. I have traveled the world a million miles and another million too. And with the help of satellites, my journeys are not through. I now can say with all certainty that I know and love the Lord. I can testify with them of old as I preach his holy word. I know what he felt in Gethsemane. It's too much to comprehend. I know he did it all for us. We have no greater friend. I know that he will come anew with power and glory. I know I will see him again at the end of my life story. I'll kneel before his wounded feet. I'll feel his spirit glow. My whispering, quivering voice will say, Oh, Lord, my God, I know. And I do know. The back windows of our home overlook a small flower garden and woods which border a small stream. On the wall of those, the house bordered on the garden, and it is thickly covered with the English ivy. Most years, this ivy has been the nesting place for house benches. The nests in the vines are safe from foxes and raccoons and cats that are about. One day there was a great commotion in the ivy. Desperate cries of distress came as eight or ten finches from the surrounding woods came to join in this cry of alarm. I soon saw the source of the commotion. A snake had slid part way down out of the ivy and hung in front of the window just long enough for me to pull it out. The middle part of the snake's body had two bulges, clear evidence convicting it of taking two fledglings from the nest. Not in the 50 years we had lived in our home had we seen anything like that. It was a once-in-a-lifetime experience, or so we thought. A few days later, there was another commotion this time in the vines covering our dog run. We heard the same cries of alarm, the gathering of the neighborhood finches. We knew what the predator was. A grandson claimed, climbed under the run and pulled out another snake that was still holding on tightly to the mother bird that had caught in the nest and killed. I said to myself, what is going on? Is the Garden of Eden being invaded again? There came into my mind the warning spoken by the prophets. We will not always be safe from the adversary's influence, even within our own homes. We need to protect our nestlings. We live in a very dangerous world 
that threatens those things that are most spiritual. The family, the fundamental organization in time and eternity is under attack from forces seen and unseen. The adversary is about. His objective is to cause injury. If he can weaken and destroy the family, he will have succeeded. The Latter-day Saints recognize the transcendent importance of the family and strive to live in such a way that the adversary cannot steal into our homes. We find safety and security for ourselves and our children in honoring the covenants we have made and living up to the ordinary acts of obedience required of the followers of Christ. Isaiah said, the work of the righteous shall be peace, and the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. That peace is also promised in the revelations in which the Lord declared, if you are prepared, ye need not fear. The consummate power of the priesthood has been given to protect the home and its inhabitants. The father has the authority and responsibility to teach his children and to bless and to provide for them the ordinances of the gospel and every other priesthood protection necessary. He is to demonstrate <clears throat> love and fidelity and honor to the mother so that their children can see that love. I have come to know that faith is a real power, not just an expression of belief. There are few things more powerful than the faithful prayers of a righteous mother. Teach yourself and teach your families about the gift of the Holy Ghost and the atonement of Christ. You will do no greater eternal work than within the walls of your own home. We know that we are spirit children of heavenly parents. There is on earth to receive our model bodies and to be tested. We who have mortal bodies have the power over the beings who do not. We are free to choose what we will and to pick and choose our acts. We are not free to choose the consequences. <clears throat> they come as they will come. Agency is defined in the scripture as moral agency, which means that we can choose between good and evil. The adversary seeks to tempt us to misuse our moral agency. The scriptures teach us that every man may act in doctrine and principle pertaining to futurity according to the moral agents, agency which I have given unto him, that every man be accountable for his own sins in the day of judgment. Alma taught that the Lord cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. In order to understand this, we must separate the sin from the sinner. For example, 
when they brought before the Savior a woman taken in adultery, obviously guilty. He dismissed the case with five words, go and sin no more. That is the spirit of his ministry. Tolerance is a virtue, but like all virtues, when exaggerated, it transforms itself into vice. We need to be careful of the tolerance trap so we do not swallow it up and get swallowed up in it. The permissiveness afforded by the weakening of laws of the land to tolerate and legalize acts of immorality does not reduce the serious spiritual consequence that is the result of the violation of God's law of chastity. All are born with the light of Christ, a guiding influence which permits each person to recognize right from wrong, what we do with that light, and how we respond to those promptings to live righteously is part of the test of mortality. For behold, the Spirit of Christ has given to every man that he may know good from evil. Wherefore, I show unto you the way to judge. For everything which inviteth to do good and to persuade to believe in Christ is sent forth by the power and gift of Christ. Wherefore, you may know with a perfect knowledge it is of God. Each of us must stay in condition to respond to inspiration and the promptings of the Holy Ghost. The Lord has a way of pouring pure intelligence into our minds to prompt us, to guide us, to teach us, and to warn us. Each son or daughter of God can know the things they need to know instantly. Learn to receive and act on inspiration and revelation. All that I have read and taught and learned the one most precious and sacred truth that I have to offer is my special witness of Jesus Christ. He lives. I know he lives. I am his witness. And of him I can testify. He is our savior, our redeemer. Of this I am certain. Of this I bear witness. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.